inevitably, and, and I would say obviously, the link has been made between patient safety and, and funding and resourcing of, of the NHS. And the Health Foundation report, A Perfect Storm, um, found a clear association between the size of the trust deficit and the quality of services. Um, and, and we've now got also the Public Accounts Committee saying that the financial performance of acute hospital trusts um, is sort of highlighting this fault line in the financial challenge the government has set for the NHS. No national plan for balancing the books. Um, what would you say about to people who say that actually the biggest threat to patient safety is the problem of the funding of the health service and, and, the, and the unrealistic efficiency targets that have been put on, on hospital trust in particular? I think it's an incredibly dangerous argument. Uh, I think there's huge amounts of evidence from around the world that safer care costs less. That about the most expensive thing you can do in a hospital is to allow unsafe care to persist. It means that you know, if someone has an avoidable fall, they'll typically stay in hospital for three days longer. If you um, allow them to have a hospital acquire pressure ulcer, they might stay in hospital for 12 days longer. It, it costs the NHS a huge amount extra. But I think more importantly, um, you have to step back and say that there's never been a time in the NHS's history where people haven't said they're short of resources and actually step back even further and you don't you won't find a healthcare system anywhere in the world, even in America where they spend double what we spend, where they don't say that resources are a constraint to delivering high quality healthcare. And once we start saying that we can't afford high quality care, that is the death knell of the NHS. I would say the argument about deficits you know, I would turn it on its head and I would say that actually there's a very strong correlation between hospitals with low deficits, good financial control and high quality care. So I think they're two sides of the same coin and that's why I think it's really important that we maintain our focus on, on high quality safety. One of the um, Public Accounts Committee uh, conclusions was 95% of acute hospital trusts in deficit and that there's been a lack of effective workforce planning. Um, and the one particular thing, the number of nurse training places has fallen by 20% in 10 years and because of those staff shortages, agency staff has been relied on and, um, and, and this is a huge part of the, both the problem with patient safety and finding out inadequate staffing but also in, in the financial problems. So I, I mean, it's a big question, what do you propose to do to improve workforce planning? Well, I don't think workforce planning has been a strong point for the NHS over very many decades. And um, we're reforming the funding of nurse training in order to make sure that we can afford to train more uh, nurses. We have more than 10,000 more doctors and more than 10,000 more nurses working in the NHS than we did uh, six years ago. So I think we are making progress, but I think we also have to be honest that we're going to be looking after a million more over 70s by the end of this parliament. We are going to need more excuse me, we are going to need more doctors and more nurses uh, and more um, ancillary staff across the whole NHS and care system and we have to make sure that we're looking at those needs holistically um, and making sure that we do have you know, the supply of the stuff we need. So I think, you know... And how, how will you do that, Jeremy? I mean, given, given, you know, we'll get on to morale in a minute, but I mean, given the recruitment crisis and all the issues that you're facing at the moment, and we, the NHS, the country, are facing at the moment, how, how will you find those doctors? How will you find those nurses? Well, we are um, funding uh, over this parliament an extra 10,000 doctors 
uh, in the NHS, uh, an extra 10,000 nurse training places. So we are expanding the supply of staff into the NHS. Um, but by, by additional money? With, yes, we've put the funding plans that we announced in the spending review will mean that we can increase the number of doctors and the number of nurses in the NHS over the course of this parliament. Um, but we also have to be honest and say that um, we won't be able to pay their salaries if we continue to pay excessive rates to agency staff. Mm. So we've gone down a blind alley with agency staff mm. in the NHS. Um, it's for completely understandable reasons. Hospitals have said in the wake of bid staffs, I need to make sure that every single ward is properly staffed. Um, and, and understandably, they've done it in a hurry. And sometimes the easy button to press is, or, or the easy number to call is the agency's number. Mm. Um, but the reality is that that has led to huge <coughs> unsustainable deficits, uh, which, um, if we don't tackle, will mean that we don't have the money to transform the NHS and to implement the five-year forward view. So we need to change that. Mm. And, and just on on the total financing, then, it says, are you happy that the proportion of national income invested in health is lower than in most other Western countries? Would you um, like to see that change? Um, I would like to see us investing an increasing proportion of our national income in healthcare, um, but um, we can only do that on the back of a strong economy, and so that's why we have to continue the very challenging process of, of turning around the British economy, but I, I think it's unarguable that with the pressures of an ageing population, um, we will need to devote an increasing proportion of our, our national income to health and social care. And how do you imagine that conversation unfolding in the current climate? I mean, it, you know, how, how, do you make, how do you make the case for that to, to George Osborne? I did make that case very strongly in the spending review and that's why we got um, not, not, not just the um, 8 billion that the NHS asked for, we actually got 10 billion more going to the NHS during the course of this parliament. So I think there is recognition across government that, um, that, that those pressures exist. Um, the challenge for the NHS now is are we going to make that money work for us in the best possible way to transform services and to deliver that high quality care that I'm uh, very passionate about? Because um, if we are, we've got to you know, take challenging decisions about tackling deficits, about you know, dealing with the use of agency staff, dealing with uh, completely outdated procurement practices, um, and that's going to need support from strong support from clinical staff as well as from management management can't do this on their own we all have to work together but mm -hmm. the budget's been set and what we need to do is to make sure that we're using that money for um, increased uh, and better care for patients I think the lesson of um, the first decade of this century was that there was a lot of extra money <coughs> Uh, the last Labour government was successful in bringing down waiting times and they should be applauded for that. Um, but also quite a lot of money actually ended up being wasted, mm. you know, particularly on things like big IT systems. Mm. And so we've got to be really careful about uh, the way we use resources going forward. And I think probably um, we need to avoid big national programmes mm. because those tend to be where get the biggest waste. So the Public Accounts Committee um, uh, criticised the government for not having a convincing plan to tackle the NHS funding crisis and plug the financial black hole. 
would you would you accept that criticism or do you think you do have a plan uh, I wouldn't accept it at all we do have a very good plan um, it started from uh, the month after the election when I gave a speech to uh, an NHS confed talking about bringing in controls on uh, the cost of agency staff and actually we've seen those begin to have a serious impact um, we then brought together monitoring the TDA to form one organisation, NHS Improvement. And that's more than just an administrative tidying up of the deck chairs. It's a recognition of the fact that trusts need support. Uh, they need support in improving their safety and quality, but they also need support in uh, running their services more efficiently. And, and we do, I think, under Jim Mackey's leadership now, you know, have the prospect of really setting up an organisation that can support trust. That actually came out at the um, at the uh, Patient Safety Summit that the, um, Don Berwick actually made the point that the, the critical difference in terms of safety programmes at work <coughs> and safety programmes at hand across the world was the amount of support that was put in place to help trusts who wanted to improve their safety record. But I think the same goes for finances. So we now, um, thanks to the work by Lord Carter, um, for the first time, we collect uh, real-time data on the 100 most purchased products uh, across 92 trusts, and we'll have it for, I mean, this is all kind of, in a way, it's boring financial stuff, in a way, it's really important yeah. because it's kind of, it's well, making our money, spent, go, it yeah. makes our money go further. So trusts can see when they buy uh, syringes what other trusts are spending on syringes, and we're discovering big discrepancies and we are the fifth we are the world's largest purchaser of healthcare products at the NHS so we should be getting the best prices and we shouldn't have big variation in prices but that will need the support of doctors and uh, clinicians more generally because um, you know we need everyone to understand it's got to be a, a joint effort to um, improve our use of resources um Patient safety, um, obviously, I think we all agree relies on an empowered, motivated, properly resourced workforce. And so this is just to move into the business about morale. Um, we've got a, 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 a personal view in the DMJ, it's published this week by Peter Bailey, who's a GP in, in um, Cambridge. And if you would, forgive me, I'm just going to quote from it, and I really welcome your response. It says, I see general practice principles and assistance at their wits end with unsustainable increases in workload and expectation. I talk daily with junior doctors who have punishing rotors, poor teaching and training programmes that fling them around the country and separate them from their families. Junior doctors have no choice but to strike, dependent as they are on their training programmes and references. GPs can work, can vote with their feet and increasingly are doing so. What's your response to that sense of a really desperate feeling amongst doctors? I mean, I'm not close to, as close to the nurses, but I, I, I guess they know well have similar stories of, of real desperation, really feeling that they're, they're, they're at their wit's end, as it says here, being flung around the country, um, away, you know, just overwhelmed and overstretched and under-resourced and serving them well. Well, I agree that doctors have never worked harder and people are feeling very stretched and pressurised and, you know, if you look at what's happening on the NHS frontline, as I, I try to do on a very regular basis, it is very tough moment, probably tougher than it's ever been, so I, I completely recognise that. Um, I think it's a mistake to make a snap judgement about morale in the heat of an industrial relations dispute, because 
you know, in any industrial relations dispute, you get an awful lot of he says, she says uh, type comments going out to the media, and um, and those can only be negative for morale. And uh, so, what I would say is, look at the big picture. Um, and the big picture, I would say, for the NHS are, are two things. First of all, there is a government that is committed to putting resources into the NHS, has treated the NHS as different. Um, and I think we saw that in the spending review. And, you know, I think we have demonstrated as the economy grows that we are willing to put more resources into the NHS. And I know we'll continue to do that. And I think the second thing is that. Um, we have a government that is totally committed to the NHS, giving, uh, being an organisation that delivers the highest quality care anywhere in the world. But I know that we're, you know, it's a long journey, and it's a difficult journey, and the transparency that's necessary at the start of that journey is particularly difficult. But um, in the end, I think doctor doctors care passionately about their patients, and so the only long-term sustainable way to improve morale is to create an NHS where doctors feel they're giving the best possible care to their patients. And on the you know, hotly debated issue of seven-day care, it is to me very striking how the two hospitals that have come closest to seven-day care, Northumbria and Salford Royal, actually have some of the highest staff morale in the NHS. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, there is no shortcut to higher morale. It's about creating a culture. So you, you mentioned... Um, how GPs feel. I agree. I think GPs are very, very stretched at the moment. We're in the process of putting together a a plan. We've had a very good working relationship with the BMA on this. Um, And uh, we have said that we want to fund around 5,000 extra GPs because we recognise supply is part of the issue. But it's not the only issue. There's also uh, bureaucracy um, and we're looking at performing the payment systems for GPs. Uh, getting rid of fax machines and GP surgeries by um, automatically making sure the discharge summaries go straight into GP's electronic <coughs> and many other things that we think can make a difference for, for GP's but you know I, I wouldn't for a moment run away from the fact that it, there is a, a lot of pressure on the front line for um, professionals at the moment. I, I just, I mean, I've got, if you feel free to bring a couple more questions. And one is about whether you accept that the ongoing dispute between the government and junior doctors has been an unwelcome distraction to the NHS at a time when so much is being asked, you know, about the yeah. efficiency savings. Um, and, you know, could you have left the junior doctor contract alone until, until the stormy wars had been navigated? So I, I do think the junior doctor dispute has been a, a very unnecessary distraction. And I don't think we needed to have a big argument over this. I think the changes that. Um, that, uh, the, the, that we proposed are you know, extremely sensible and reasonable and I think actually many junior doctors are looking at them now very carefully and discovering that they aren't uh, this sort of terrible unsafe contract that it's being painted to be actually it's a much safer contract that we'll have before and I think it deals with a fundamental issue about paying conditions for junior doctors, which is that the basic salary was too low and too much of it was dependent on premium payments. And that makes it difficult to get a mortgage and all the other things that people need to do when they're starting young families and so on. Um, so I do think it's, it's disappointing that we haven't been able to have a sensible discussion about what is the right thing to do. Um, but... You know, I also think that if we are passionate about 
delivering the highest quality care. We can't ignore the many studies that we've had that have shown that there is a measurable weekend effect in mortality rates. And um, and I don't think anyone should be able to um, hold a gun to the head of the NHS and say, we're not prepared to discuss this point blank. I think that is... Um, unreasonable behaviour, it's not fair for patients. I do, I think I've said to you before, uh, I don't think the junior doctor's contract is um, the only change. We've got to look at uh, seven-day diagnostic care, seven-day consultant care, seven-day access to the social care system. There are lots and lots of elements of seven-day care um, um, and it's, it's just a shame that in one part of the NHS it wasn't possible to have a, a sensible plan <coughs> it. Thank you. My final question. I, we've, we've discovered that you're on course to be the longest serving health secretary ever. In a, I mean, is that, that's an extraordinary day, if that's true, because it's quite short. Even. Mm. Um, if you could turn the clock back before you became health secretary, what, if anything, would you have done differently? I think that um, the, the biggest thing that I've I've learned in doing, I and mean, the NHS is the world's fifth largest organisation, so I think every health secretary arrives and thinks, how oh, the hell am I going to make a difference here? It's such a huge tanker. Um, and you are both humbled by the privilege of leading an organisation which is doing so many wonderful things every day, and also very daunted by the prospect of, of how, you would, how you could possibly make a difference. And I think I started by shying away from um, anything that seemed nebulous, in particular like changing culture. And I think I've learned actually that world-class organisations, almost the only thing they talk about is how to get the right culture. Mm. And I think I've learned that the right culture can't be imposed from the outside, it can't be imposed from by the health secretary, it can't be a top-down process, it has to come from inside. Um, so I think um, you know, that's been a journey for me. I, I think um, I started off thinking, you know, perhaps um, the only thing I can really do here is to create a culture of honesty and transparency. That was in the wake of mid-staffs when the NHS wasn't transparent about its problems. Um, I think I've now realised that actually it's got to be transparency plus. It's got to be transparency plus learning. It's not just about identifying the problems, it's about what you do to deal with them. And so for me, my real focus now is about creating that learning culture. Um, that, um, you know, and I think I recognise that will be um, a long process and. Um, you know, it'll, I'll be long gone before history judges. I've really succeeded in, in changing that, but that's probably where, I've, uh, where my own thinking has changed. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>